I want to ask you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, this morning I want to look with you at verses 1 and 2. You read the passage for us and pray and ask the Lord's help, and then we'll study it together. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder And perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the clear guidance and instruction that it gives to us, and yet there's so much depth so much richness. The longer we walk with you, we truly find your word to be sufficient in every way. We recognize, Lord, the complexities and the depths of this life. And yet the faithful find that your word meets every problem we face, every question we have. We may not find every answer we look for, Lord, but we find satisfaction in you and in your word. So God, we pray that your word would now meet us in a time of need. Pray that your word would be an encouragement to us, that your word would be a comfort to us, that your word would be a a proper challenge to us, that your word would minister to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I prayed and have been praying for quite a while now and thinking as as hard as my thinker allows me to about what to preach to you on this Sunday. I had sort of plan to just keep going with Mark as an exclamation point to our commitment to consecutive expositional preaching, Uh, but I thought maybe that something else would be proper. I thought about how to communicate my gratitude to you and spent time reflecting on Paul's passages of thankfulness to churches, and yet I just didn't want to make this about me in any way. And so instead, what I, thought it would be, what I thought would be most helpful to us is that we look to Jesus. I thought that it would be most helpful for us to be reminded that the Christian life is a race. That the Christian life is bigger than any one person. The Christian life is bigger than any one church. The Christian life is bigger than any one lifetime. The Christian life is set out before us and is continually compared to a race. And so I thought the best thing that I could do as an ordinary sinner 
is to continue to challenge and encourage you and myself to keep at the race. To do my best to say that even though this is a sort of goodbye, this is not the end. Even though there are various emotions attached to this day, this is not the great day. This is not the finish line. There's more work to be done. There's a Lord to serve. And he's faithful. And he will meet us in every one of our needs. And so I thought that the best way to communicate that would be to come to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul loves to use athletic comparisons to the Christian life. And one of them that he especially loves to use was the comparison of a race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Or to the Galatians, when the Apostle Paul wanted to let them know that his gospel, which he preached, was not just his gospel, but it was a gospel that came directly from Jesus Christ and was confirmed by the apostles. He wanted to make sure that he confirmed this gospel, he said in Galatians 2.2, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And later when he encourages the Galatians to get away from the false gospel that they had embraced and to return to the true gospel, a gospel not according to works, but a gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he said to them in Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Or to the Philippians, Paul says in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It was because of the Apostle Paul's mentality that the Christian life was a race, was a contest that required the exertion of extreme effort in following the Lord Jesus Christ, that he could say at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hence, therefore, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Not only did Paul understand that the Christian life is a race, but he understood that at the finish line there's a prize that waits. And that it doesn't just await him, 
But in fact, it awaits everyone who loves the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is met at the end, at the finish line, with a crown of righteousness placed on our heads by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single runner in the Christian life receives that very crown. It's not a competition amongst ourselves, but it is a competition in ourselves. Because there are some enemies that we face, certainly outside, but there's enemies that we face on the inside as well. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, there's weight and there's sin that we have to battle against. And so as we think about the Christian life, and as I thought about what was the best thing I could leave you with, I want to remind you, That if you're in Christ, you're in a race. And you may walk with a cane. Or you may be in the prime of your life. Or you may be learning to walk. But the Christian life is a race. It's a race that's run for the glory of God before the face of God. And so whatever happens Next Sunday, and all the Sundays after, the Christian life is a race. So I want to ask all of us right here, right now, to commit to running that race. It will be a benefit to us. It will be a blessing to those around us. But most of all, it will be to the praise of our great God, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who himself ran the race. And as the writer makes explicitly clear, has finished the race and is seated presently at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot to look forward to. So, as we walk through this passage then, I want us to see how we might then successfully complete the Christian race how we might successfully complete the Christian ways. And I think, the, I think the author here shows us four keys to doing that very thing, four keys to successfully completing the Christian race. It begins, first of all, with the word, therefore. And the first key is this, to remember those who have run well. Key number one is to remember those who have run well. You're good Bible students. You see that verse 12 begins with, a word, with the word therefore. And you know that whenever you see the word therefore, you always should ask, what's the therefore therefore? The therefore is always uh, a logical conclusion drawn from what has just come before. You know what's before chapter 12 because you know how to count. It's chapter 11. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews, then you know chapter 11. We often call it the hall of faith or sometimes even the hall of heroes where the writer of the book of Hebrews has been encouraging these Christians who are struggling with the temptation to return back to their Jewish roots, 
to return uh, back to a false gospel, to turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the reality that Jesus, as he has shown them, is better than angels, is better than Moses, is better than the best high priest, the reality that everything that God has promised is in Jesus. And yet they're tempted to look away from that. They're tempted to no longer run the race. And so as the writer continues to build his argument, he comes into chapter 11 by explaining to them, look with me at chapter 11 verses 1 and 2, explaining to them what it is that he's calling them to, what it is that faith actually looks like. We sometimes have a squishy, unhelpful definition of faith. We sometimes call it blind faith, right? As if you're just supposed to roll the dice and hope that God meets you in a poor decision. And the good news is if you're a Christian, God will even meet you in poor decisions. But that's not what he calls us to. And that's not what faith is. So the writer defines for us what faith is. One in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. So the author wants us to understand that when he talks about faith and when he talks about the Christian life, what he means is you are promised things in the future according to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you don't yet see. A heavenly home, a healing that will be permanent, rest that will be permanent. In fact, the the writer has already dealt with the question of, if we're promised things, then why don't we see them now? And he's explained to us that the reality of life in a fallen world brings difficulties, but there's promise in the future and that promise in the future has already been secured by the work of Jesus Christ. And so in order to clearly teach by example what he means, he lifts up for us these various people throughout biblical history. We're not going to go through each one of them, but just jump down to verse 8. And let's think about what he wants us to learn, for instance, from Abraham. He says, by faith, by, remember what faith is, it's the the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Do you remember what happened when God called Abraham? Abraham, who was then named Abram, was living in modern-day Iraq, where they worshipped the moon. Abraham was a pagan when God called him. Worshipped false gods. And God said to him, Abram, get up and take your family and go to the land which I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And Abraham or Abram said, okay. That was before the days of Google Maps. Abram couldn't go to his, his temple cult and present a PowerPoint slide showing where he was going. He didn't know where he was going. Which is why when he gets to the promised land, the Lord appears to him. 
because the Lord appears to him as if to say, you're here. And so verse 8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He knew the direction that he was supposed to walk, but he didn't know what the end was going to be. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why did he do that? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's journey was an eschatological journey. Meaning, Abraham's journey was to a specific place in a physical location, but the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand as he pulls back the curtain of Abraham's life that Abraham knew he was going to something even better than that promised land. Abraham knew there would be a new heavens and a new earth. And he knew that in order to get to the new heavens and the new earth, there was work to be done in this earth. Oh, look at verse 11, and we see Sarah's faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Or drop down to Moses in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses knew about the Christ. Moses knew that he had to walk through the dirty desert in order to get to a better place than anything that this world could contain. And he knew that in order to do that, he would have to put off certain things and fix his eyes in a certain direction. Or drop down to verse 32, where the writer seems to have been tired and just sort of decides that rather than highlight specific characters, he's just going to bullet point a few for us. He says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, pause. Samson? Samson? You ever read the story of Samson? If Samson were alive today, though they couldn't bind him, but Samson would be in jail for life. Samson was not righteous in himself. We'll come back to that. Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith 
conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And then he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You see what he's doing there? Perhaps you've heard this passage explained and it's not necessarily totally unhelpful. Perhaps you've heard this passage explained before by the the characters of chapter 11 are seated in a stadium surrounding you and you're on the track and they're watching you running around the track and they're cheering for you. Go, go, you can do it. But the writer is actually telling us something better than that. As encouraging as that might be to hear the faithful in the past tell us, go, go, you can do it. What the writer is doing through the lives of people, even like Samson, is to say to you, dear Christian, that if God could do it with them, God can do it with you. That's what they are witnesses to. It's not that they're witnessing your life. There's actually, there's actually no biblical evidence that says anyone who has died and gone to heaven can see anything going on down here. It's a really sweet and sentimental thing that we say to people when loved ones die, but the Bible does not say that they can see us or they even have any clue what's going on here. But there is one who can see us. And just like he saw them, and just like he met them and just like he promised them and just like he made them righteous by their faith he will do the very same thing to you and so the point here is not so much about this cloud of witnesses witnessing our lives but the cloud of witnesses that stand up and say look what God can do if you just keep running That's what he wants us to know at the very beginning of this. He wants to to begin his encouragement, his command to run this race with a motivating factor. In fact, he surrounds it with motivation. The first motivation is with this cloud of witnesses that testify not to what they did, but testify to what God does with people even as wicked as Samson. And the second is in Jesus himself. But we'll save that for the end, because that's the best part. 
So first of all, if you're going to run the Christian race in a successful way, in a, in a way that will make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to remember those who have run well. Search the scriptures and look not to find heroes, because the reality is, even in the best of Old Testament people, are nothing better than sinners. Look past the veil of their flesh to the God who sits enthroned over their lives. That very same God is still at work in his people. So search the scriptures and look for the faithfulness of God. Read Christian biographies. Know the works of God in the lives of his people. Remember those who have gone before you, who you love, who you can't wait to see in heaven, who have already been welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember their example. Be encouraged that if God did that with them, he can do it with you. And so first of all, we need to remember those who have run well. And then secondly, if we're going to successfully complete the Christian race, we need to get rid of whatever slows us down. Get rid of whatever slows you down. The writer continues to build his momentum. Uh, he let, he put us into this great cloud of witnesses. And now he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You know what it means to lay something aside. It means to set it down, to take it off and to remove it from your person. To not keep one hand holding on to it, but to throw it off completely. And now he gets into uh, even more imagery of a race. You ever seen a wheelbarrow race before? It could be an empty wheelbarrow, but usually there's a person in the wheelbarrow or there's maybe you know, a big heap of rocks in the wheelbarrow. And it's funny to watch, right? Because it's such a miserable failure. They're running crooked, they're slow, and that's the whole idea. The writer is saying, you're not running a wheelbarrow race here. Get rid of whatever's going to slow you down. And he, he specifically names two things that slow you down. First of all, he says to lay aside every weight. You could read a lot about all the guesses that people have about what weight he's talking about. But I think there's a very important word in front of the word weight. Every. It's an all-inclusive, an all-encompassing weight. Anything that is going to slow you down needs to be gotten rid of. And you'll notice that he sets up two categories, right? Weight and then sin. Which is to say that there is sin in the Christian life that will slow you down, that will hinder your Christian life, that may even disqualify you in the race itself. But there's a category before the category of sin, and it's weight. Things that are not sinful, but things that are not helpful. Things that distract you. Things that hinder you from running the race the way that you should. We could spend all afternoon coming up with a list of what those things might be. It could be a relationship for you, 
A relationship that causes you to continually take your eyes off of Jesus Christ? It could be a hobby or an interest to you. If you regularly find yourself saying, I just don't have time to pray. I just don't have time to read my Bible. Then take a step back and look at your calendar and see what else you're filling it with and begin to chop it up. Because nothing is as important as those things. You may need to get rid of animals. You may need to get rid of a hobby you've completed and done for years and years and years. I don't know what it is, but I know just like the Lord did with me, he's convicting you of some things right now. It could even be a a career that you need to get rid of. Now, I'm not telling you to quit your job and, you know, just mooch off of everybody else. But the day is coming very, very quickly when Christians will no longer be able to go into certain professions. I don't know what it is for you, and please don't hear me making any demands on your life. That is not my prerogative, and it's not my place but I think you know what it is for you. And I think you've known for a while. And you need to be careful that if you ignore the Lord's pricking of your conscience over and over and over again, pretty soon he's just going to stop because your conscience will callous over and you'll begin the downward descent into disqualification from the race entire. So spend some time thinking about what it is that slows you down. He he talks about weaknesses, or, or weights rather, and then he talks about sins. And he doesn't just call them sins, but he calls them, ESV says, sin which clings so closely, or it could also be translated the sin which so easily ensnares. We live in southern Oregon. We know what it's like to be ensnared in spider webs. Never have I ever walked through so many spider webs in my entire life. And you know what happens when you walk through a spider web, right? It sticks to you and you cannot get it off. That's the picture that he's creating of sin. That sin that that continues to haunt you. That thing that your flesh continues to long for. And the thing that you have indulged now and then. He says, lay it aside. It's not worth it. And and why why would you lay it aside if you find yourself enjoying that particular sin? Why would you ever lay that aside? Well, because people in church might think I'm a sinner. No, no, that's not why you lay it aside. You lay it aside because Jesus is better. That's why. Because though that sin brings you temporary satisfaction, it will eternally destroy you. And Jesus and Jesus alone will bring you eternal satisfaction, both now and in the life to come. And so you remember those who, like Abraham and Moses, looked for a better place, even though the writer makes it clear they didn't get there yet because they can't get there until we also get there. 
And so you, you look that sin in the face and you say, no, you don't satisfy the way that Jesus does. Get lost. Only you and the Lord know what slows you down. But I want to encourage you to take some time today, while it's still fresh, to pray and to think about what that is, what it is that you need to get rid of. It may not look like it, but I used to run long-distance races. I only ever got up to a half mile, a, a half mile, a half marathon, 13.2 miles, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.1, thank you. 13.1 miles, I tried to train for a marathon and I ended up just spending the whole days vomiting after my long runs, so it didn't work out so good. We used to live in Indianapolis and the mornings can be quite brisk in Indianapolis. And so when it would come to be race day, you would go, the race time would usually be early so you could beat the humidity and when, when it got a little bit more hot. So the races would start at 8 a.m. or so, something like that. And when you went to the race, you wanted to be dressed for the weather, right? So when it was cold, you put layers on. But when, the race, when it came time for the race to start, when it came time to get in the corral, to line up behind everybody else that was running the race so that you could start the race and engage the little timer chip that they gave you, you shed those clothing. Sometimes people would wear trash bags over themselves because a trash bag, didn't, it didn't matter if you lost a trash bag. It wasn't like you know paying $100 for an expensive running shirt or something like that. And so people will wear trash bags, uh, gloves, the real cheap gloves on your hands, things to keep you warm. But when it came time for the race, everybody knew it's time to get ready. So the trash bags would come off, the gloves would come off, all that extra weight that served a purpose before the race started would come off. Because you did not want anything to slow you down, anything to distract you while you were running the race. And that is what the writer is telling us here. Get rid of anything that will slow you down. And then third, the third key that he gives us to running a successful race is to keep running. To keep running. This is in fact the main verb of the entire clause here. Everything else has been participles so far. And even verse two, looking to Jesus is a participle. The main action here is to run. The end of verse 1, he says, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. He specifically tells us not just to run, that's pretty clear, right? We understand that we are supposed to run the race, but he tells us, first of all, how we are to run. We're to run in a way, in a specific way. We are to run with endurance. This is, I think, my favorite, well, I guess grace is probably my favorite. One of my favorite biblical words, endurance. And it's not my favorite because I'm good at it. It's my favorite because I need it. The definition of this word is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. 
So you can, if you've ever lifted weights before, then you understand, you take that weight off the rack. If you can't hold it up, it's coming down on top of you, which is bad. So you understand that this word conveys the idea of inherent pressure upon you, but the strength to bear up underneath the pressure, the strength to carry that weight. And that is the way he says that we need to run. We need to run with the understanding, first of all, that it will be hard. The Bible is under no uh, illusions. The Bible does not want us to think about the race being easy. The prosperity gospel is a lie. What Jesus calls his people to is entirely worth it, and it's full of joy, but the plain fact of the matter is, it's hard. And so the Bible continually tells us, it's going to be hard, and so you need to keep going. Look back to chapter 10. He's already developed this idea, and in fact, it's it would be an interesting study if you were wanting to do it later on to read back through the book of Hebrews and to think about this theme of endurance. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, in other words, after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so mistreated. So he's reminding them of their Christian biography, of their own life experience. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property. Did you catch that? You joyfully accepted people stealing your things. Would, would you joyfully accept someone breaking into your house and stealing your things? But that's what he says they did. And do you know why they did it? Well, let's keep reading. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, it's the hope of heaven that allows you to endure the plundering of your things. Take it. I've got Jesus. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he shows you the heritage that you live in. And then he tells you, therefore, you run just like they ran. And so the writer wants us to understand that the way we are to run is to endure. We've got to just keep going. But then he also says that he he lays out not just how we are to run, but he lays out for us what we are to run. And notice he says to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race is his 
is his comparison to the Christian life, his illustration of the Christian life. But I want you to notice something else. It's not just the race generically, but it's the race that is set before us. If something is set before you, did you do that? You see, it's God who sets the race before you. And there are certainly some commonalities within that race that everyone runs, but we need to understand that there are also particular details that differ with everyone. In other words, your race is your race, and my race is my race. And it's God who sets that before us. God set before Abram the race of believing that God would give him an inheritance which included land and people, and so Abraham went. God set before Sarah, even though she laughed, the reality that even though she was far beyond the age of conception, she would have a child. God set before Moses the freedom of his people and the promised land because there would be something even better. Every single one of us has a unique and specific race set before us. It's the Christian race. It's the walk of faith. And so there are certainly some commonalities. There's faithfulness to the gospel. But nobody else but you has the gifts God's given you. Nobody else but you has the calling God has placed on your life. Nobody else works your job like you do in the position you're in. No one else has your family and your particular setup. All of that has been sovereignly ordained by a God who's not only powerful, but a God who's good. You weren't born where you were born on accident, and you don't live where you live on accident. And you weren't smart enough to figure it all out. The providence of God is such a comforting doctrine to us. And it tells us that God has put you where he's put you to do what only you can do. And so with this reality then uh, of the, the, the truth that God is the one who's put you where he's put you then we run with endurance, don't we? When I went through basic training, I was in the infantry in the army, and so we got a special form of basic training that was a little bit more mean. The end of our basic training was a a week-long out in the woods in the middle of the summer, with the gators and the mosquitoes and all the best that Georgia has to offer, with little sleep and constant uh, trouble from the drill sergeants. For instance, a flashbang exploding right in your face like happened to me. You finish that right around midnight And then you put on your 50-pound rucksack and you have to walk 15 miles back to the barracks. Before I did that, in our last last little, uh, we called them field problems, which was a fancy way of saying torture, 
I just so happened, because it was dark, to plant myself down into a nice big bed of fire ants. And so I've got fire ants crawling all over me and I'm trying to kill them and you can't take your uniform off because you'll be in big trouble if you do that. So you just got to smack them and do your best and just keep on walking. So I'm walking, we're tired, it's hot, it's probably about 2 a.m. at this point. I've got fire ant bites all over me, my arms are on fire and we're just walking and walking and we're slumped over, blisters all over the place, everybody's miserable. But do you know what got me through? I just kept thinking, when I get there, I get to go home. With every step, when I get there, I get to go home. I get to eat pizza. I get to eat ice cream. I get to go home. See, endurance is necessary. But in order to have endurance, we need to have encouragement, don't we? What's at the end of the Christian life? glory. And so that brings us then to the final encouragement that the writer wants to give us, the best part of all, and the fourth key to successfully navigating the Christian race, and it is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Verse 2, he says, looking to Jesus. You notice, what name did the writer use here for our Lord? He used his human name, Jesus. He typically refers to him as Christ or the great high priest or something like that. But when he compares the Christian life to a race and when he wants to encourage Christians who are following the Lord, he uses his earthly name, Jesus. Because he wants you to look to Jesus, but also to look back on the life of Jesus. You see, it's not just the Christian that runs the race, but it's the Christ himself that has ran the race. And so he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus started it, and Jesus will finish it. And what, is it, what was it that Jesus was the founder and perfecter of? Our faith. Notice he doesn't say the faith, does he? Though that would be equally true. But he personalizes it because he wants you to grab hold of Jesus. He wants you to understand that as you run your race, Jesus has gone before you. And because he endured faithfully, then he is the founder of your faith, or some translations say the author of your faith. A better way of thinking about it is the pioneer of your faith, the architect, the builder. It's not just that he wrote the story, he blazed the trail. Yes, there was a time in your life when you put your faith in Jesus, but that's because Jesus had already gone before you and in that very moment had called you to himself. And not only did he begin it, but notice he's the perfecter, the one who brings it to a successful conclusion. It's as if he's looking on your life and he's saying, okay, now this, I need, to, I need to make a little tweak here. I need to sand this rough edge here. I need to shore it up here. 
And that's what Jesus is doing as we run our race. He's perfecting us until one day we meet him in glory and we will be perfected. It will be done. And so what you need when you think about running the race with endurance is to remember that you are not alone. You are not running in your strength. You're running in the strength that God supplies. You're running in light of the one who is the perfecter of that very faith. And so when you're tempted to think to yourself, I can't go on, you sit back and you cry out, Lord, I feel like I can't go on. But your word says that you are the author and perfecter of my faith. And so I cling to you. When I can do nothing else, I cling to you. He continues to unfold these realities of who Jesus is. He says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Notice Jesus also had a race set before him. And that race concluded with joy. It was the joy of the accomplishment that helped Jesus to endure the cross to despise the shame, to to think to himself, this shame does not compare to what waits on the other side. And isn't that the Christian life? This shame, this pain, this suffering, this difficulty does not compare to what awaits on the other side. He lets us know that Jesus has finished the race. He says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In his, what theologians often call, heavenly session, what is it that Jesus is doing? Well, the writer of Hebrews has already told us back in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then he says in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we won our race, we have a high priest who not only made atonement for our sins, but because he was tempted in every way, knows exactly what you're going through. And yet he didn't give in to the temptation. 
And because he pierced the veil with his own blood, we now have access to the very presence of God to draw the confidence that we need. Because he ran the race confidently, or because he ran the race, we can do so confidently. And we do so all the way up until the day. The writer makes it clear that the day is drawing near. We don't know when the day will come, when that great day of judgment appears, when we will be gathered together to meet the Lord, but we do know it is coming. And we do know that in light of what he's done for us, paid for our sins, given us life, in light of what he's done for us, we want to run faithfully. And so if we're going to do that, then we need to remember those who have run well. We need to get rid of whatever slows us down. We need to keep on running. And we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. For years it was believed that no human being, because of our physiological ability, could break uh, the four-minute four mile mark. It was believed that no one could run a mile under four minutes until one day a man named Roger Bannister ran a mile in three minutes 59.4 seconds and then just two months later another man named John Landy broke that record by running a mile in three in three minutes 57.9 seconds because these two events happened so closely, it was, uh, it was the challenge went out to find who it was that was the fastest man alive in those days. And so a match was set between these two. John Landy was the favorite because he had run it in three minutes and 57 seconds, while Roger Bannister had run it in three minutes and 59 seconds. And two seconds is a lot in racing. So the race was set. And as the runners ran the race, John Landy was out in front as it was suspected that he would be. But as they crossed the final turn, John Landy and Roger Bannister pumping with all that they had, giving it everything that they had, two fastest human beings in the world in the 1950s. John Landy neared the finish line and made the fatal mistake of looking back behind him over his shoulder to see where Roger Bannister was. And unbeknownst to him, he looked over the wrong shoulder. As he looked over one shoulder, he could not see Roger Bannister, and Roger Bannister passed him on the other side without him even knowing it to go on and win the race that day. You see, brothers and sisters, we have a race to run. And we have an objective to meet. There is a finish line. And by God's grace, the faithful Christian cannot lose the race. But we want to run in a way that is worthy of the gospel call of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may God help us to run the race and to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
we pray that you would help us. Lord, I could never possibly say what needs to be said to this precious body. I'm so grateful for your care for all of your people. I'm so grateful for your love for us that when we look over the wrong shoulder, when we take our eyes off the finish line, when we slip and fall on the track and and smash our face into the ground, you're there to pick us up. Because not only do you start our faith, but you finish and perfect our faith. We could never run without you, Lord. We pray that you would help us. Help us to run. Help us to fix our eyes on you. We confess it's so easy to put our eyes on ourselves and our own circumstances. But this life, as you so clearly show us, is a mist and a vapor. It's here and it's gone. So Lord, while we're here, while we're running the race, until we meet you, until we hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, we pray for your help to run well. And we pray that knowing that you'll give it to us. Help us to bring you glory in anything and everything that you set our hands to do, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.